when I was a school bus driver, they warned us that the first few days of nice weather in spring, all drivers turn into absolute and complete idiots. And you know what? That was me. Really? I nearly got T-boned in the, in the parking lot of the school over here. I watched a guy in a Jeep turn in right in front of a semi, and I'm pretty sure he shaved off half his hairs on his face, you know. He was that close. Crazy, crazy stuff. But then I have to ask myself, what did I expect? <laughs> expectations are an interesting thing because sometimes we, uh, we have higher expectations than anybody's ever going to meet. My expectation is, and it's a foolish expectation, is that people know what they're doing when they get behind the wheel of a car. I should know better because Mr. Hutchinson, my grandparents' neighbor when I was a kid, Mr. Hutchinson, a colonel, a retired colonel, and he was from New York uh, but lived in San Angelo. He had retired in San Angelo. He, uh, I went and caddied for him a few times, which is hilarious because I truly was just a bag-carrying caddy. I knew diddly about golf at the time. I didn't know any more when I left either. But uh, one thing I did learn from Mr. Hutchinson was his advice on driving. He said, when you get into your car, this is what, right before I got my license, when you get into your car, assume everyone is stupid. Now, I like to be nicer than that most of the time, so it's kind of hard for me to get into the car and assume that. But his advice, those expectations leave you to be surprised by somebody who knows what they're doing every now and then. If you go out thinking everybody's going to know what they're doing, they're not going to. You know, and all of us have these moments. So it's not like, you know, it's, it's plank and speck. All of us have the moments where we're too distracted, like the lady who almost hit everybody in the parking lot. It was because she had, I would say phone, but you know, the, like the Samsung Galaxy Note. Some of you probably have one. It's actually like a tablet that you talk to, you know, and so it's, it's kind of like you hold it up to your face like this. And so she had her, she had her, her Galaxy Note in front of her, and she's doing this all the way across the parking lot, like 30 miles an hour. Well, see, if I'd remembered Mr. Hutchinson's advice, I wouldn't look like this. But instead, I looked like this and, and, and you know, was going, what in the world is wrong with myself, right? So then I got distracted. Expectations can throw us like that if we expect things to be better than they, than they ever possibly can be. Sometimes we're surprised in a good way when we expect the worst and something good happens, but it doesn't mean that we should always walk around expecting the worst. Nobody ever really wants to hang around with Eeyore except for Winnie the Pooh. All the rest of us are going, please no, you know. Hello, good morning. <laughs> you know, I don't like that. My last sermon I ever preached in Troy, New York, I, uh, on my last day there, I was preaching on encouragement. That was what I wanted to leave them with, was encouragement. And I said, speaking of Eeyore, I said, I thought about Eeyore and nobody wants to be like that and nobody hangs around Eeyore all that much because it's depressing. And so I said, without thinking, so what everyone needs is to find their poo. <laughs> yeah, see, you hear it as soon as I say it. But I didn't hear it when it was still up in here, you know. I said, and you need to, and I kept going. I don't know what was wrong, because that's the way that works sometimes too. I, I just, you know, I said, you know, everyone needs to, to have an inner poo. Well, that's actually sometimes the problem that makes you go, you know, constipated. That's the problem. That's my one gross thing, uh, dealing with expectations. And, and you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> so there you are. I have not, not exceeded, but something, uh, your expectations. In the, the book of John, chapter 7, let's go over there, we come to 
almost a, a repeat of some things that Jesus has been trying to get across to his detractors. Uh, ever since chapters 5 and 6, he's having a constant back and forth with some of the Jewish leadership about who he is. He has shown them in John chapter 5 that he is the Son of God. He told them then that his nature was of equal nature with God the Father. They understood that's what he was saying so much, they understood it so well, that they actually wanted to kill him for blasphemy because they understood that he was saying that he was, in fact, the Son of God, equal to God and divine. And they thought, what a nut. Okay, They didn't meet their expectations when they went to hear this Jesus and, and it made them angry and they actually start then plotting to kill Jesus. Well, all during the time since, Jesus is still trying to get across because He actually cares about these people who are being so stubborn and conceited and resistant to belief in Him. But He cares about them. So He keeps going back and trying to convince them of who He is. He does it by the way He teaches. He does it by the miracles He performed by the power of the Spirit. He, all these things were meant to show them, listen, you're not getting it, but you need to get it because this is God at work. He cares about them. It's by His mercy and by His grace that He stayed arguing with them. And that wasn't just to win an argument. That would be our thing. Just pure stubbornness, right? But His wasn't. His was. He really did want them to come around. And so He keeps trying to convince them. And that's, that's a lot of John chapter 7. So, because it's a repeated argument in some ways, we're not going to get too much into the fine points of this argument He makes. We did that last week. Well, instead... I want to look at, some, at a particular thing he says in verse 24, but let's get context. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the, Jew, the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, to us, that sounds like great advice, right? Listen, if you really want people to know who you are, you're not going to hide hide it under a bushel. No, they're like singing them VBS songs. And, and they're saying, go out and do this publicly. Go up to the feast. It's a great opportunity. Well, that wasn't what Jesus had in mind. So he says in verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And, and there's, there's probably a few days here. It's, it wasn't like he went up five minutes later. Uh, he didn't go with them. This is a, a days-long feast, seven, eight days. So... He goes up days later. So, let's, let's pick back up verse uh, 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then also he went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but, him, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who speaks, of the, speaks the glory of him who sent him is true, 
and in Him there is no falsehood. By the way, this is one of the things He's telling them. Listen, you'll know whether I'm genuine or not. Most people who go out and speak about themselves do so to build themselves up. I've come to you, and all I'm telling you is what God wanted you to know. I haven't built myself up. I haven't taken those steps. So pay attention to even just the character and the way that I present the kingdom to you. That's, that's part of his argument. Verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Now that's kind of funny that they said that. Because it's them, you know. People, people, people. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses. It's from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He's referring back to John chapter 5. They're still arguing about it. All this time later. John chapter 5. He heals a man. But the problem was, he said, take up your mat and walk. And the guy did. And mat walking is work and healing is work. Therefore, you violated the law. Jesus says to them in verse 24, after he said, you know what your problem is? I healed a guy. That's the problem. This is the root cause of the problem here. I helped somebody. You would circumcise somebody if it was on the Sabbath because you know that to keep the law of Moses, that would be the right thing to do. But I healed somebody, helped somebody, and that's a problem. Verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He says, you're looking at this all wrong. You're looking at it because it's not what you expected. It, I'm not coming in the way you expected. You're looking at the healing of this man. It wasn't on the right day, and therefore it's evil. Are you even thinking through these things? And the truth was, they were thinking through some things, and they didn't. That's a funny little extra parenthetical mark there. I just got distracted, sorry. Saw that? That's not like a frown. No emoticons. They, they just were completely thrown, like I just was, because what they expected wasn't what Jesus did. And it's all superficial. None of it had to do with the deep things of God. None of it actually had to do with the law of Moses. The law of Moses said, love your neighbor as yourself. If you have the power to heal on a Sabbath and you love your neighbor as yourself, what do you do? You heal him, right? So this is what he's getting at. So he, he kind of blew their expectations too. So here's a, a list of some different things that were by appearances things Jesus did wrong according to the people that were surrounded him that day. His disciples and brothers first think that he's wrong. They say, listen, if you really want to do this right, isn't this funny? They're telling the Son of God how to do this right. Think about that for a second. Any of us ever guilty of that? God, if you really wanted to work this out, here's how you need to do it. But we don't word it like that because we're not stupid, right? We say, Lord, would you please, please, please. And if you're going to do it right, you know, then that kind of thing. This is what they do. If you're going to fix this, this is the way you need to fix this. Go into town right now. It's public. It's a holiday. You'll get lots of attention. Nobody keeps this stuff a secret. And yet Jesus several times has done that. He's told people who were healed. He told the family whose daughter was raised. Now, y'all don't tell anybody. Even though half the town knew she'd been dead, they're going to know. Somebody's going to notice. But he would do that. It just wasn't what they expected. He didn't deliver the way they wanted. He healed on the wrong day. He did it wrong. The law says you don't work on a Sabbath. It's got to be work to heal somebody. Therefore, you must be doing the work of the devil. Right? That's what they said. It's crazy. They criticized where he came from. They said, you're from the wrong place, Jesus. You haven't had enough learning, Jesus. You don't have enough studies, Jesus. How is it that you're even able to preach so well, Jesus? Because 
we know there's no diploma on your wall. And we know that the zip code of your town is not 90210 or 76802. You are from podunk, little farm community that nobody cares about because that's the way they viewed, people in Jerusalem viewed Nazareth and Galilee. You know, they made fun of the disciples one time for their accent. Couldn't possibly be the Messiah. God would use somebody who had the right credentials. He would use somebody who knows how to do things on a Saturday. He would use somebody who's going to do it the way that we've always done it, right? But they were wrong. He says, don't judge by those appearances. That's superficial. You're judging by the way things look to you. This is a little uh, logical exercise that they went through, and it's not that different from a lot of things that you'll see if you go to you know, a, a theological training. It's not that different than if you are a, a, uh, uh, taking a logic class in college. And so we might look at it and go, well, that actually makes some sense. This was their defense. They said, you can't be the Messiah because nobody's supposed to know where the Messiah is going to come from. He's going to pop up, right? You didn't just pop up. We know your address. We can go find your family. Your brothers are right over there. We know all about you and we know your background. We know where you're from. Therefore, if you can't know where the Messiah is from, but we know where you're from, who are you not? You can't be the Messiah. It sounds reasonable. It sounds logical. But Jesus tells them, guys, that's just one of the stupidest things I have ever heard. That's in the newer King James. That's just dumb. Stop judging things by whether or not it fits through your preconceived notion. That's what he means when he says you're judging by appearances. You, you had a way you thought it was going to be packaged, and it was packaged wrong. It didn't have the right return address on it. And you think that makes it wrong. And you're wrong. You're wrong. Make a right judgment. He's telling them, think through more deeply whether or not. Because look at their evidence. Their evidence is, don't know where the Messiah is from, but I know where you grew up, therefore you can't be the Messiah. What do you have to ignore for this logic to work? What you have to ignore makes this illogical. Okay? Because you have to ignore what they're arguing about. They're arguing about a man who had not walked in 38 years, but Jesus speaks to him, take up your mat and walk, and he can walk. The miracle alone, the miracle alone, slaps in the face what he's saying because you've got to deal with how that happened. What is those three basic questions that you, that you ask as you go when we were talking about the book of Mark? What can man do for a man who was paralyzed for 38 years in the first century A.D.? Nothing but carry him where he needs to go. That's it. What could Jesus do? Get up and walk and he walks. Third question, who does that make Jesus? But They go, oh, yeah, but it was Saturday. You know Jesus sometimes just want to go, and what is your point? Yes, it was Saturday. He says, and Moses taught you about circumcision. He goes, and you don't even really have that right because you credit Moses and it was before him. He kind of points to their ignorance. And he says, yet you still have your kids circumcised. Why? Because you know there's a deeper principle involved than the immediate superficial judgment that you would make. So you know this, the greater commandments trumps the it's Saturday. He says, are you telling me? Love your neighbor isn't more important than, but it's Saturday. And we can talk ourselves out of anything, including the second of the two greatest commands. Well, I don't have to love my neighbor today. It's Saturday. I don't have to do anything for him. It's Saturday. And on another occasion, he would say, yeah, but if your ox was stuck in a ditch, would you expect your neighbor to help? Yeah. You know, who's going to say no? Yeah. Why? Because love your neighbor trumps. It's Saturday. Jesus would show them this over and over and over again. And they would come back with these little logical exercises and every single time he would just blow them out of the water. Just blow them out of the water. 
which when that happens, they'd get this face. It says, you think you know me? You think you know who I am? You don't know me because you don't know the one who sent me. Who is he saying sent him? God. He tells the religious leaders of the day, you don't even know God. That's why you don't understand how God works. You can't understand Him or know Him if you reject everything He's doing. Is there a message in that for us at all today? That where we see God working, but He doesn't work in the way we expected, we say, must not be God. Couldn't be God. Not possible that it would be God. God doesn't do that. God doesn't say that. God wouldn't allow that. God wouldn't, God wouldn't, God wouldn't. To which God might be saying, as Jesus said that day, well, actually I am, but you wouldn't know it because... They didn't like that. Didn't meet their expectations. It wasn't what they were wanting, and so it wasn't the way they wanted to receive it either. You know, uh, Shakespeare. Oh, am I wrong? I'll come to it in a minute. I'm not going to skip. I'll go back. Shakespeare said this. You're like, oh, no, there were three of those? <laughs> gotcha. Expectations. <clears throat> he said expectation is the root of all heartache. Mentioned earlier in the marriage workshop. One of the biggest killers of marriages is the unrealistic expectations one spouse has of another. Often, unspoken high expectations that the other person can't meet, especially if they don't even know what they are, right? So many marriages end up that way because one of them had all these little checklists the other one was supposed to meet. Well, the other one didn't even know. They might have even done most of them, but they had no clue. And it's sad because all that was was a little bit of communication. And a little bit of realism, right? Root of all heartache. Let's go back. So how are you going to fix that root of all heartache? First, this is how you judge with right judgment. Remember the Bob Newhart video? Stop it. <laughs> stop it. I love that video. I'd play it every week if it was up to me. Just stop it. There are just times where what Jesus needs us to do is to stop judging altogether. That's why he said, you know the verse, right? Out of Matthew, you're going to do your homework. Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. In the same way that you judge, you will be judged. Same, isn't that scary? They don't scare you at all. Not the do not judge part, but the but if you do, the same standard you hold everybody else to, that's the standard I'm going to hold you to. Mm, I guess I better straighten up my driving, right? That's what he's saying. It's exactly what he's saying. So best thing to do is simply first stop it. Let Jesus be Jesus and God be God and let them decide how they're going to work. Instead of always saying, well, I don't think God works that way. Let God work the way He works and be surprised. Second, use a mirror, not a magnifying glass. It makes us feel really righteous. It does. That's why people do it. It makes us feel good. It's a bitter good. But it makes us feel good when we can find where somebody else has made a mistake. It makes us feel like we're smart, doesn't it? Ha ha, I was smarter than you. I found where you made a mistake. It doesn't make you smart. It makes us obnoxious. It does. When we walk out into the world ready to just judge everything we've ever seen. When we go or visit another church and the first thing we're there to do is to judge, are they doing it the way I expect them to do it? Was it ever about us? The sign on our building, for example, says the church of the name of the dude who owns it. So whose expectations ought to be set and met? And yet whose are we usually most upset about? <laughs> not his. Same thing with them. They had the same problem. But use a mirror, not a magnifying glass. Speaking of marriages, go back to that one too. You want to fix a marriage... You don't get a magnifying glass out and start saying, looking over your wife while she's asleep, I think I see another wrinkle. Listen, my wife packs heat. That's stupid. You don't do it. She also doesn't have any of those that I would get out of magnifying glass and see. But, beautiful sleeper. But the, 
but you don't do it. Kills your marriage. Every sitcom ever, when they run out of ideas to write, they start doing the, let me tell you everything that has ever annoyed me about you episode. Have you noticed that? Like every sitcom in the 70s, 80s had that episode. It was so formulaic. But every single time, of course, what happens? Well, what would happen in real life? <laughs> Relationship blows up. Stupid idea. Stupid, stupid, stupid idea. Let me sit down and tell you everything you've ever done that I thought was wrong. And you thought that would be a good thing to do? You knew it was a bad idea the second they got out their pen, didn't you? Okay, that's fine. Let's do that. <laughs> you know, when they start flipping pages. You know, oh, this is not pretty. No, don't do that. Look at yourself. The marriage book, His Needs, Her Needs, is not... I would go and make the list of all the things she ought to be doing right. It is, I need to look and see what my wife needs and how would I do that. You never look at the other. You look at yourself and say, what do I bring? Same thing in the church. Same thing as we represent Christ to the world. It's not, let me go out and fix everybody. It's let me submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that will have an impact on changing the world. Step three. Oh, there we go. Let God, I'm just going to read this the way I wrote it, okay? Let God decide how God will work. Let Him be God. Toss your imaginary churchianity, man-made, hokey-pokey, bumper-sticker, jukebox kind of expectations of who God is. I could go on longer. We were talking about uh, a friend in New York had asked Tanya and several other people about ideas for a ladies' class. She's teaching a ladies' class. And a common theme among the ladies that responded was, please don't make it that stuff. Okay? Please, none of this, I like to call it the butterfly that lands on the petal of the rose that grows at the end of God's perfect rainbow of love. I'll give you a cat hairball right there, won't it? Just terrible stuff. I mean, you almost expect your Bible cover to be Hello Kitty when it's something like that, don't you? The problem is when real tests of faith come, that stuff doesn't work. When God moves in the in a good and powerful way. It's never through the hokey-pokey little stuff, is it? It's through the real meat of the Word of God, the real transformation of the Holy Spirit. It's not glorified arts and crafts. Okay? It doesn't work that way. When Jesus came into the world, He didn't come with pipe cleaners and glitter. He came with the Holy Spirit working powerfully to move through the hearts and the minds of men and women in this world. Totally different expectation than what we might have in our Christian world today. Rip the bumper sticker off and get out your Bible. That's what I tell you to do. Because our expectations are often too soft for the battle in which we are engaged. And that will cause a lot of heart, heartache, heart attack, and problem. The final one is what we really ought to be doing all along. It's what they needed to do. Watch and learn. You learn a lot when you actually sit back and actually look at stuff. In 1926, they had decided that they were going to try and develop the perfectly sized cockpit for all military airplanes. You know, it was the birth of a new industry and a, a new use of aircraft after World War I. And they wanted to mass build these planes, mass produce these planes. So let's do it the easy way where we don't have to do adjustments. We'll just find kind of the average. So they measured 100, 200 pilots to see what were the average lengths of the arm, the average lengths of the leg, and what size the seat needed to be, and all of that kind of stuff. And from 1926 to 1940, every United States military plane had the exact same dimensions, no matter how different the rest of the plane was. had the same dimensions within the cockpit. There was a standard. In 1940, this engineer said, you know, 
well, more than this one, several said, do you think maybe the size of people has changed between 26 and 40? Certainly it had in the years prior. And they had. And so they went and they gathered 4,063 pilots. 4,063. They took ten different dimensions of these men. They measured from here to here. They measured the, the reach to the stick, down to the pedals, to each little switch, knob, and gauge. They measured it all. And they came down to these ten important dimensions. They averaged them across the board for 4,063 men. They said, we've got the perfect measurement. That's their expectation. We have done it. We've used good, sound logic and reason. We used science and good measurements. And we ought to have now the perfect cockpit. Well, guess what? Daniels gathers all the information in all these dimensions. They put together a sample cockpit. They start calling in pilots to have them sit in the cockpit. Do you know how many that cockpit fit? It wasn't 2,000. It wasn't 1,000. It wasn't 500. The cockpit designed with the averages of 4,063 pilots fit exactly zero of them. Zero. I mean, can you imagine? Because who knows what the government spent on this study because you know how that goes, right? Can you imagine what the accountants thought first? You spent how much and you got what? <laughs> what they learned was really important, but their expectation was completely blown. They were sure that they had used the best logic and measurements to make it perfect. So had the Pharisees. They were so sure that they'd gotten it just right. They knew, they thought, everything that the Messiah was supposed to look like. And when Jesus showed up, He didn't look like that. It just didn't fit. So rather than say, well, I guess we need to adapt our expectations because God is clearly working through this man, they said, nope, you're going to squeeze into that cockpit. And if it doesn't fit you, to mix metaphors, you're not Cinderella. You're not the Messiah. The army, at least, had a little bit better thinking. They said, maybe we're searching for something that doesn't exist and we need to actually change our expectations to fit the reality. That's what the Pharisees should have done. The construct of who the Messiah is, the construct of who God is, we've based on superficial, erroneous material. Jesus says to them, stop being so superficial then and check out the real happening that is right before you. Make a right judgment. Ask yourself, I see God working. I see God working through this man. He healed a man who was a paralytic for 38 years. He has caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He's raised the dead. At some point, you've got to ask questions. Who is this man? That's where we are. The way to stop making the wrong judgment and coming to the wrong conclusion that just because your expectations were incorrect for the reality. Let your mind be blown open to who Jesus really is who God really is. Did He not answer your prayer the way that you expected Him to? Maybe the expectation wasn't realistic. Maybe there's information He has you don't. Maybe you're trying to squeeze yourself into a cockpit that doesn't fit. And He's saying, but I've got this one just for you. It's the Goldilocks thing. I've got your soup. I've got your chair. I've got your bed. It's Jesus. But you've got to stop trying to fit into the one that's too small. Stop trying to put your God in a box. Stop judging by appearances and make a right judgment. Let's pray together.